Hi, my name is Keith Gesson. I'm a professor here at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. I'm guest hosting The Kicker this week and introducing a conversation that I had on April 26th with the Russian journalist Ilyana Kostachenko as part of the Delaport Lecture Series here at the Journalism School. Ilyana Kostachenko is one of the most intrepid and fearless journalists at Nova Gazeta, Russia's oldest independent newspaper. She began working at Nova Gazeta in 2006 and has since broken numerous important stories. In 2011, she covered the shootings of striking oil workers in Jana Odin in Kazakhstan. In 2014, she was able to get an interview with a Russian soldier in Ukraine, thereby providing definitive proof that Russia was involved in the war, despite its claim to the contrary. Most recently, she returned to Ukraine to bear witness and write about the Russian invasion. Her reports for Novaya Gazeta were censored and led the paper to halt publication. I spoke with Kostuchenko about her career, her time in Ukraine, and her thoughts about Russia's future. The audio starts just after I ask how she became a journalist. An opportunity to get some pre-professional education, like basically some very basics of every profession. And uh, so one of options was journalism. And uh, the uh, classes were organized um, by uh, local newspaper and uh, they promised to pay for every published article. So I basically decided that uh, to earn money writing easier to washing floors and I was right, it's easier. Um, so uh, I came there and started to work, uh, but I cannot say that what I did that time was real journalism. This newspaper was quite under control of local administration. Uh, so a lot of censorship and all this stuff. I didn't see as, as it is wrong because I didn't know that there are other ways to produce journalism. And then, fortunately, I bought uh, issue of Nova Gazeta. Nova Gazeta is uh, the, it was, uh, the last independent newspaper in Russia, uh, uh, federal, like national newspaper in Russia. So I opened it on Anna Politkovskaya's article about Chechnya and I was totally devastated. And um, I realized that there is real journalism and it's there. So I decided to go for it to Novaya. Um, and I did it. So I finished school, I entered Moscow State University, they gave me dorm, so I was able to move to Moscow, and then I just came to Novaya's office and asked them to take me as a trainee, and we did, I was 17, and in a year after they took me as a staff member, so I'm working there for 17 years now. And um, you never met Blitkovska? I met her. Actually, she was the first person I met in Norway when I entered the office. I didn't um, recognize her. Uh, she, and I asked like local people who this beautiful woman, and they told me this is Blitkovska. Uh, we worked at the same time for a year, and they took me as a staff member in April to 006 and in October to 006 she was murdered. Uh, so we never really had a chance to talk. 
uh, I mean, we did have a chance to talk, but I was very shy and I was just a trainee. So I was thinking that one day I become a real journalist and when it happens, I, pro I will approach her and I will tell her how grateful I am and so on, so on. Somehow I thought I have so much time and apparently it wasn't true, so. Um, Belitkovska, she was a very brusque person, right? Did you experience that? Brusque? Brusque. Um, um, she, um, cut close. Yes. No, no, she wasn't brusque. No, no, no she was no. brusque with me. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you have your own experience. Yes. <laughs> um, no, no, she never, she was never brusque. Actually, she was very kind and intelligent and tender in some point. Uh, but yeah, she had her thoughts and her beliefs and probably she was, she could be furious. I I remember that one day they had um, fired with Muratov, it's our chief editor, and yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I but I feel like you have a, a different style from hers. Uh, styling. Um, in in your um, kind of well, I don't know. Uh, how would you describe how you do your reporting? Well. To do reporting is the easiest way. Like everybody is journalist here, right? So you just go talk to people, write down what you're saying, and then make a story, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what did you? What did you have to learn um, when you started at Nova Gazeta? Or, or can you can you describe what Nova Gazeta was in the sort of context of Russian journalism? Um, you know, over the last. 15 years? Well, it was changing. Um, when I started to work in Novaya, uh, I was so proud. I came there and when I became a staff member, I was so proud and so happy then. I was celebrating with my friends for like three days we were drinking and I never could get drunk because so much endorphins in my blood. Um, but when I uh, came to my uh, J school in Moscow and started to share the news that I'm right now in Nova Gazeta, and everybody was like, oh, well, not bad for the first place to work. Maybe one day you can get, you can get into some serious media outlet. <laughs> uh, many people were skeptical about Nova these days. Um, because the main uh, mood was that we need to find something beautiful in Russian reality, that our country getting stronger and we have a nice young president, Vladimir Putin, who can you know, bring us to happiness. And why are you always criticizing him? What's wrong about you guys? Why are you always write about uh, Chechnya? Why are you always finding some problems? Why are you always investigate things? Like, why can't you just, you know, be happy with us? Uh, so it was the main mood for a long time. Uh, and also, like, we have, we had our, we have our specific in Norway. Actually, uh, it's, that's why we could uh, work so long. Uh, 
then other media outlets, uh, independent media outlets was already closed in Russia. Um, so in Nova Gazeta, we own our own shares. So we don't have an owner. So every staff member has shares. And that's why um, every position is elective. So we uh, elect our chief editor, we elect our editorial board. Uh, and if we decide to you know, make some changes in our main documents, our main rules, we vote for it too. Uh, and it means that um, it's hard to influence on us from outside. Uh, but it also means that we don't have investors, and uh, we are the poor. We, we are the poorest uh, media outlet in Russia. We have smaller salaries, and um, so other my colleagues from other medias they were very skeptical about that. They were like, "Why you live like homeless people? Uh, why don't you find a nice owner? Like I don't need an owner." I can do it myself. No, you need an owner. You'll have a better salary. You'll have a, a better representation. And uh, then uh, into 014, uh, then uh, annexation of Crimea happened, and then the bus war started. Um, basically, many media outlets was closed by the owners because the owners got phone calls from Kremlin and. They just closed media outlets, and Novaya was like not. Novaya was the last independent national newspaper. Uh, so people, uh, so uh, my colleagues look uh, at us more serious way, uh, and then situation was getting worse and worse and worse, and when this war started. So many medias were blocked, uh, but not nowhere, because uh, we uh, last year we won Nobel Peace Prize, so somehow it was protection for us for a while. Uh, but then we got two warnings from Roskomnadzor, it's like Russian censorship agency, and after two warnings, they can take your license uh, out of you. So we had to. Uh, stop operating, and right now we are not operating. Uh, but we were able to report from war for 32 days, and I think it's hell a lot. Um, before you were shut down, and, and you know, in over the course of certainly since 2014, when the kind of situation in terms of press freedoms and political freedoms was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, Novia is not on TV, right? Um, so the kind of, its reach is limited, right? Um, what was the, how did you think of the purpose of what you were doing? Um, in terms of, well, you know, uh, you wrote that um, incredible uh, report from Nadilsk Right mm -hmm. about the spill um, uh, in in Nadilsk. Um, when you're doing journalism in a, an authoritarian regime, like in an authoritarian 
um, state, right? Um, where the government ultimately is not responsive um, to what is reported in the media when it controls you know, most of what is said in the media. Um, what's the point? Well, people still need information mm -hmm. and our readers are the best. I mean that. I mean, they're very different. Uh, even Putin is between them. Putin was uh, subscribed for Novaya Gazeta uh, all these years. <laughs> um, uh, and but many nice people between them too. I mean, not just Putin, uh, like school teachers and uh, workers and managers and prisoners. We uh, we kept uh, our printed version for so many years because uh, we wanted prisoners to have access to the information because in Russian prisons there is no internet so you can get information only from printed media outlets so uh, we did it for them mostly and there are many readers I mean like our, our week circulation is around 400,000 and uh, our um, like number of views on the website uh, per day. Before this war was about million, but when this war started was about four millions, which is comparable to TV audience. Uh, so we, we are trying to be normal uh, national wide newspaper in not normal situation. Because um, like, uh, Nova, I mean, Nova is not exceptional. Like, if we were publishing in Europe, we were just usual boring media outlet. Like, they do pretty the same thing we do. But on the Russian landscape, it looks like a bit different. Um, were you surprised uh, that the war started? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I didn't expect that. I mean, even uh, then Putin said his historical speech about that Ukraine was invented by Lenin. Um, uh, I, I was thinking like the majority, I was thinking that he will send troops uh, into Donbass officially this, uh, right now. And then they gonna, and he gonna blackmail the whole world that like, if you won't agree with me, I'm gonna move them forward. If you will agree with me, I will move them back. Something like that. I didn't. Ex I didn't expect that they will bomb Kiev and other cities. Like the night war started, I got a phone call from my friend, and uh, she said me Kiev is bombed, and I asked her who's bombing Kiev. <laughs> like. Well, I cannot describe my feelings because actually I have none. Since the war started, I don't really feel many emotions. Uh, but, well, everybody was awake already, so we just basically came into the office and started to decide who goes to Ukraine. And there were many people who wanted. Um, so, but they chose me because I had experience uh, covering war before and I had experience in Ukraine and I'm a girl and it's easier for girls to work on wars and for boys because mm -hmm. nobody takes us serious. Mm -hmm. um, how, did you, how did you get there? 
Uh, well, well, it wasn't easy. Um, uh, they, we had correspondence in Kiev, so they wanted to send me uh, to the south, like Odessa, Nikolaev, Kherson, all the stuff. And the easiest way was to go to Moldova uh, and then to uh, just to cross the border on feet. Uh, but then I was about to go to the airport, Moldova closed its sky. Uh, so I took another ticket to Romania, it's like the next country, but then they found out that uh, the border there, to cross the border is possible only on ferry and ferry stop operating in the worst circumstances. Uh, so I went to Poland and I tried to cross the border once and uh, Poland let me out, but Ukraine didn't let me in because they said like, there is not, it's not possible with a Russian passport anymore. And they knew nowhere, they knew who I am I, and they're like, we are very sorry, we really won't be able to let you in, but we cannot. So I stepped back and uh, when my newspapers start calling to the Ukrainian officials to explain them how important for us to be present in Ukraine right now. So some of contact worked and Next time I tried to cross the border, they let me in. So, yeah, and then I was working for like a month and a week. Because uh, like in Norway, we have a protocol that our journalists shouldn't work in the wars longer than two weeks. Because uh, like then you start to make mistakes and uh, you're going to get this false sense of um, safety. Like, you think, like, if I didn't get killed before, I won't get killed after, so I'm going to be all right, it's wrong. You never can be sure you're going to be all right on the war. Uh, but nobody could change me, because this uh, trick with crossing border after phone call, it works like one time, it doesn't work again. Uh, so that's why I was working till Nova Gazette was operating, and then Nova shut down, so I left. Mm -hmm. And so you, so you were in Odessa, Nikolaev. I was with Odessa, Nikolaev, and Kherson. Mm -hmm. And I came to Zaporizhia. I was going to go to Mariupol, but then circumstances changed. Novaya wasn't operating anymore, and I found out that they cannot really go to Mariupol because Russian secret services somehow knew I was going to go there. And uh, they made their precautions, so I wasn't able to go through Russian checkpoints anymore. So, um, what, so what was um, I mean, what was your experience like uh, just in those in the places that you went to? In which place? Um, in all the all the places. All the places. Yeah. Oh, it's very different. Mm -hmm. You know, like. Um, I didn't meant to report from the border because uh, uh, I was thinking just to go straight to Odessa. But I felt that war started since the time I arrived in the uh, Warsaw bus station, because all buses were going to Ukraine and all buses were full of men who were going to Ukraine to participate, to protect their country. And it was really impressive. I mean, 
there was already this document uh, uh, signed by Zelensky, Ukraine president, uh, that uh, men between 18 years old and 60 years old cannot leave the country during the wartime. So these men, they all went, they know this is like one way trip, like you cannot leave, your, you won't be able to leave your country uh, till the war ends. And they all were going there. And I met a guy like 18 years old who uh, was like European student, some fancy specialization, linguistic or something like that. And he was crossing five countries. He, when he learned that war has started, he crossed five uh, borders to get into Warsaw to take his bus. And he was calling his mom. And his mom wasn't saying something like, oh, please don't go, it's war here, please no. She was like, Ah, oh, I got your keys. I put them under covering, uh, um, uh, rug. Round to the rug. So you come home, you just take your keys. Um, so yeah, and then across the border, I saw thousands and thousands of women with kids who were staying uh, in front of the border. Uh, they wanted to leave the country. And it was really cold. It was very cold spring. And some of kids were so young. Some women had real babies, uh, like month years old, month old, something like that. And I remember women, a woman who was sitting like that on the ground and her very, very small baby was laying on her knees and she was like trying to protect him from the cold. Yeah, so my first report was from the border and then I went to Odessa and Odessa uh, was about being stormed by Russian troops. Uh, they already sent some ships to storm Odessa, but there was, there was storm on the sea for a few days and then sea was storming. Uh, uh, Odessa people were mining the beaches. Uh, so basically, then storm was over, ships couldn't come closer because everybody was mined. Uh, so I was writing from there and then I went to Nikolaev, which was half surrounded by Russian troops. They were very close to the city, like 30 kilometers. And it was uh, shelling, constant shelling. So a lot of dead and wounded people. Wounded, uh, wounded kids, dead kids. There were so many corpses in the morgue. We didn't have space for them. They basically put corpses one on another, uh, like piles of corpses. And I saw two sisters lying one on each other. One was 17 and one, another was three years old, uh, killed by Russian shelling. Uh, and then I saw that guy who was working in the morgue, he looked at them like in very personal way. And it was just guessing, I asked like, yeah. did you knew them? And he's like, yeah, they might got children. And they brought the, them here and I recognized them. Uh, and also 
I was able to document another war crime uh, in Nikolaev when Russian troops shoot uh, the car uh, with women inside. This is, was a car with red cross on it. And this car was delivering um, teachers for orphanage to the orphanage. And they knew it's like civil car, but they shoot on it and three women died. And I wrote like their story too. Uh, so when I went to Kherson, which is, was under occupation, so it wasn't easy to get here because uh, um, like city was blocked. Uh, I was looking for a way for a few days, but I found a way to get in and to get out. So I crossed front line twice. Uh, and I was lucky uh, to be there because there were so many things to report about this. People were uh, disappearing in Kherson. Uh, they were kidnapped by uh, Russian army, like journalists, civil activists, people who had uh, fighting experience in Donbass. So they were disappearing and uh, they were kept in secret prison and i was lucky to meet some people who were uh, able to leave this place and they described the place they were contained so i was able to find out the exact place of the secret prison and i also found the names of 44 people who were contained there so yeah it was important to report uh, and yes, and then I was about to go to Mariupol, but somehow we found out about it before I got there. So. Um, did you do? You said you had you had been in in Ukraine in two thousand fourteen. Yeah. And um, what kind of training did you get in terms of what to do in a in a war situation? None. 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 Yeah. When I uh, come here, I, I was uh, attending Columbia J School in. 2018 and we, here we did have a training uh, good one and uh, I was attending CUNY uh, J school too so I had another training there and trainings are nice but actually they are not a guarantee of your good work or your safety there so uh, I believe in more practical approach but I mean it's, it's nice have a to have a training don't get me wrong like it's better have one, but you have none. But in 2014, I didn't have any. Uh, but I worked in some crisis. I didn't work in war before that, but I worked in uh, like a couple of revolutions and I worked in Genazian uh, um, shooting uh, in Kazakhstan. And yeah, I like had some combat experience. So. And so, and so, how did you keep yourself? Like, what are your rules for kind of staying safe when you were there just now? Uh, you mean in the war? Mm -hmm. Well, how to say it right? Um, 
you cannot be safe in the war because it's war like it's like crazy lottery like you never know what happens next like if you get lucky you like survive if you not get lucky you're gonna be killed and like it's the thing you should understand when you go there so there is no like in the war you make many choices every day but you never know what choice is right for example on this ukrainian war like i have a friend he's ukrainian and he lives in moscow and he has daughter in kiev uh with grandchild and um yeah when kiev was bombed first day he asked me like should i uh, should have i send them to should uh, should i send them to the village and i said sure sure it's a good option and now we know after Bucha and all the stuff that villages was the toughest place to be uh likely his daughter is alive she's been evacuated uh but she may die there as many other ukrainian women died uh so basically what do i do i try not to provoke people with guns uh i try not to scare anyone because when you scare people people shoot you um i don't really trust life vests because they make you heavy and slow and I don't really wear them because uh, there is another aspect of it, like communication problem. Like then you go to the like, front line and uh, you see some babushka there with no life vest, like in, in the court and your life vest and helmet and everything. And like, what do you feel right now? Like nobody going to talk with you this way. Um, uh, so, yeah, and like, there are basic rules uh, which you can get from these security trainings, like then shelling, like you have to hide, but you have to choose the goal you're hiding. Uh, but it's also like a bit tricky because like then it's this actual shelling, you don't have time to choose. Like you look, like you take a very quick look and then you hide and it's like, and just you praying. So, yeah, it's probably I don't have a very good security strategy, but so far it works. When you were there, you just mentioned this, like when you were there and, and, and talking to people who were, um, you know, really in distress and had lost loved ones, how do you, how do you kind of get yourself to talk to them? How do you justify to yourself forcing them to kind of go through that again? Well, I had some grief experience in my life. I lost some people I loved. And what I know about that condition that nobody can get to feel you worse than you already feeling. So it's not like you should afraid to approach these people because you cannot make their pain bigger. Like, uh, so then you're approaching them, you like, first you should, should say that you are sorry for their loss, because it's true. And 
then you should explain them why are you approaching them like I know that you lost your beloved ones and I want to write what people they were can you help me with that and people even people usually want to share things and then you just should listen I usually don't ask people questions Though it might sound strange, but I usually just listen, and then you listen them long enough, they telling you more than you just ask them questions. Um, when you were you talked about crossing the border and and they, they couldn't let you in because you were Russian, you had a Russian passport. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that you were a Russian journalist, um, an opposition? Russian journalist, but a Russian journalist in Ukraine. I mean, what was your, did you, did you, did you feel like it is my country that is invading this country and killing these people? Um, I mean, yeah. Sure, mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And how did people there react to you? They helped me all the time. Since the moment I crossed the border, because like when I was flying there, my bank went under the sanctions and my cards were blocked. So I got no money with me. Like literally I had some rubles. So I was thinking to change them to uh, Ukrainian grievance and uh, all exchange, exchange uh, points, they stopped accepting rubles right away. So I got no money with me, like zero. And then across the border, my SIM card stopped working as well because like there was no roaming with aggressor country anymore. So it was nice. I crossed the border, I got no money. Uh, I got no connection with anybody. And I have a very heavy bag with helmet and life vest because my newspaper made me have it with me. Uh, and I just see, look around and see a guy who's smoking and I approached him and I'm like can you share some internet with me and he's like who's you gonna need who you need to call and I'm like I need to call to my office I'm a journalist from Russia and he's like I can call and I'm like please do it so he called to Russia I talked to my editor and he's like, your bag looks heavy. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, and he's like, what are you gonna do right now? I said, I need to go to Lviv. And he's like, okay, no cars are stopping around here. So you need to walk like 25 kilometers. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure I'm able to walk to 25 kilometers. He's like, oh, you, you will be able to, cause it's very cold here. If you stop walking, you're freezing immediately. <laughs> But I will help you with this bag. So he took my bag and we walk all the night, 25 kilometers. And this help I got in every point I came. People were helping me uh, to get money, to get connection, to get contacts, to get from one point to another point, to cross checkpoints. Um, they even uh, offered me to get uh, a fake Ukrainian documents. Uh, and they did it not because they liked me very much, uh, but because they understand why I'm there. 
they understand that I'm going to report things to Russia, to Russians, and somehow they were thinking that it's important for Russians to know what's happening in Ukraine, what Putin doing by day and name in Ukraine. So they, they saw me as a chance to speak to Russians, and that's why they've been helping me all the time. And, and your, um, at least two of your reports were, were blocked, right? Were, were taken down. Well, um, in Nova Gazeta, right now, from I had four reports from war, and one is deleted according to new law. Uh, new law is that if you uh, provide information which different from um, uh, what our Minister of Defense saying, uh, you are a criminal and you're going to be persecuted up to 15 years in prison. Uh, and not just you, for me it's fine. Uh, not just uh, me, but also the whole bunch of people who were helping me uh, to publish this report, like my editor, like proofreaders, uh, like web designers, like everybody, everybody. Uh, so one was deleted and another two was deleted in a while because the prosecutor's office sent a direct um, order to Nova Gazeta to delete it uh, according to the same law. Uh, but we knew that it will happen. Uh, so uh, since uh, I published, I was publishing my reports in Norway, uh, another media outlet from Poland, Norway, Polish, you're publishing it, them in Russian too. And then reporting got, started to disappear from Norway website. Uh, bunch of Russian independent media outlet, which were already blocked in Russia, uh, they approached me and like, can we republish it? And I said, sure. So uh, it was like a bit stressor effect. Like then we tried to take something from the internet, like it's spread wider and wider. So basically right now, <laughs> many people read it. Um, so um, you cannot read it on Nova website anymore, but you can Google it and read it. Have you been, have you been, did you, you left Ukraine a few weeks ago, and then did you go back to Moscow or, or no? No, uh -huh. no, no. Uh, I went to Poland and I think I'm gonna stay in Europe for a few months. Uh, basically, the thing is, when I go back to Russia, uh, most likely I'm gonna be arrested and prosecuted as a criminal. Um, so, according to this law, I mean, like, I. And uh, before it happens, I want to finish some work uh, I have. So I want to finish some works to pay some debts, uh, to clean my laptop, basically. And it will take a, f a while. So, and then it will happen and go back to my country. Do you feel that what has happened after the invasion in Russia, is that 
the logical place to which the Putin regime was always going? I think so. You do? Yeah. I think so. And, um, you know, it's easy to say, like, it was obvious, because, like, retrospectively, everything is obvious, right? You look back and then, like, it was obvious. Uh, But it was the thing what we always tried to, you know, prevent with our work and we failed. So probably we should have worked more. Probably we should have done not just journalism, but more activism. Mm. You know, we also have this shitty conversation in Russia, like if you're a journalist, you shouldn't be an activist because you're losing your, you know, unique perspective on things. Uh, it's such a bullshit. And, but I believed in this bullshit for so many years. So I was like, I'm conservative journalist. I should be objective. And if I step into activism, I lose my objectivity. Um, I mean, I was an activist for a while, LGBT activist, of course, like, but I didn't like it at all. And basically then I got some health problem, I stopped doing that. And I always had, but I always had this illusion that uh, my work is enough. Like I do my work fine and it's enough impact, you know. Um, But it wasn't true, obviously. And yeah, I feel a lot of responsibility. It's not like it's my fault that Putin started this war, but it's like everyone's fault. And some fault is on Western countries because we were reporting so many years about what's happening in Chechnya, in Russia, um, even in Ukraine, in Donbass. And we reported about all these laws new laws in Russia, for example, about laws about second-class citizens, like LGBTs, we are officially second-class citizens in Russia. And it's called fascism, and we're reporting about it, and nobody listened. Everybody meet Putin, make nice photos with him, and, you know, keep buying gas and oil and uh, negotiating. So here we see the result. So many people have left in the last two months. Have yeah. left Russia. Probably many of your friends. No. Not Most a, not of my friends, friends okay. stay in there. They're crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, do you think those people are... Do you judge them, the ones who are leaving? Mm-mm. No. No. Why not? It's a huge loss to lose your country. I mean, it's very hard. You know, I'm judging not people who leaving. I'm judging people who leaving and saying something like, the best people of Russia are leaving. The worst people are staying. Yeah, I judge these kind of people. And uh, I don't like uh, people who refuse their responsibility for what happened, 
especially people who worked in media uh, and who's saying like, oh, we were such a good journalist for so many years, but Russians are so stupid, they didn't listen to us. That's why we got fascism. And I think it's a very uh, tricky way to look at the situation. Like if you're such a wonderful journalist, why nobody listened to you, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so yeah, uh, but I try not to jump into all these Facebook discussions too much because it's exhausting. Thank you for joining us this week for The Kicker. Kyle Pope will be back next week with more conversations with the world's leading journalists.